0: Being a woman of color, the last thing I wanted to do was get the cops involved. From that that sexual assault, I really started to get into alcohol as a way to cope. I, I felt so many emotions. I was angry. I was frustrated. I blamed myself. I felt guilty. I'm like, how could you do this? Um, how could you allow this to happen? All these emotions, all these feelings. And I didn't have no coping skills. I come from a line of addicts. So the only thing I knew to do in the moment was drink.
1: Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 157. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we are all about community, and each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I never thought I'd be someone who would get so much um, value from being in an online support group. I kind of think, I'm the wrong generation, it's not going to work for me, but I made a conscious decision to... um, post twice a day and comment in the early days to comment on other people's yeah. posts and you read stuff from people you think this woman has seen into my soul this person absolutely understands what I've gone through and that's yeah. been a huge revelation to me so if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe my guest this week is an incredible woman A queen, as she calls herself, and quite rightly too. Both of Leia's parents were addicts, and she was actually born with crack cocaine in her system. Not many of us would even survive such a start in life, but Leia not only survived, but she thrived. She survived being born as a crack baby, she survived a sexual assault, and she survived alcohol dependence. And these days, she is thriving as an activist and a public speaker. She's campaigning against sexual violence. I began by asking Leah to introduce herself.
0: Yes, ma'am. So, yeah, I always tell people my backstory is that I'm the daughter of two addicts. My mom, she struggled with drug addiction. She did crack cocaine pretty much my entire life. And my dad, when he was alive, he was an alcoholic in, in and out of prison. So... I was what they used to call in the 80s at that time, a crack baby, because I was born with a certain amount of crack cocaine in my system. And so really, the doctors told my family that I wouldn't live past the age of five. And if I did, I would have all these issues, you know, and I always tell people, well, God clearly had other plans because I didn't have any of those issues. But being addicted to drugs or finding out that I was addicted to drugs definitely shaped a lot of. The way I view the world, it definitely shaped how I felt about my mom. I had a love-hate relationship for my mom for a very long time. And it took me to go through my own process of healing to really begin to see her as the human that she is, just trying to navigate life.
2: So what was your childhood like, Clear? Were you with your parents? Did they bring you up or did someone else bring you up? No. How did that work? So I
0: was raised by my maternal grandparents and my aunt and my mom, like I said, she battled with addiction. So I never really saw her. In fact, my family never really told me about my parents' addictions until I was about... 14, 15 years old. So as a kid, I knew something was different because where I was living at the time in New York City, a lot of my friends were two-parent households. You know, they went home to mom and dad, and I went home to my grandparents and my aunt. So immediately, I know I felt different. I felt like I stood out like a sore thumb. It was kind of like, why am I so different than everybody else that I'm friends with? And my grandmother, you know, I know now she was just trying to protect us, so she didn't tell us. But there were moments as a child, even I could recall like going to the doctor just for a regular checkup and a doctor would ask about my parents and my grandma would be like, oh, we have to talk about that in private. So I didn't even know my mom battled with addiction for a very long time until I was about a teenager. And then once I discovered it, it further fueled my feelings because I was already feeling abandoned. I was already feeling like, Well, what is it about me as a child that you didn't want to be here? You didn't want to be a part of my life. So discovering the addiction piece definitely increased the abandonment and the resentment that I had for my mother for a very long time.
2: Yeah. And is she still on drugs or did she manage to get clean? No, unfortunately, she stayed on drugs
0: until the day she passed away. It was devastating because I always say I thought of my parents as some type of superhero. For me, my parents just couldn't do no wrong. Even with the addiction, it was, again, this internal struggle that I had with I love them. But I can't stand them all at the same time because I just couldn't understand why they chose the life that they chose. And you had kids in the midst of it. But my healing journey helped me to really understand that my parents were just regular everyday human beings really trying to navigate this thing called life with the tools that they were given or the lack of tools that they weren't given. And they just chose a different path.
2: So you you describe yourself as a sexual assault thriver, which is a very kind of positive way of uh, survival, isn't it? Talk to us about the assault and how you used alcohol to cope with uh, the trauma.
0: Yeah, so I got sexually assaulted January 27, 2013. So actually, I'm coming up on the 10th anniversary. I was living in the state of North Carolina at the time, I was very new to the state. My car that I had, had broke down. And I met this guy who was basically his role was trying to help me get a rental car until I could get my car replaced. It didn't work out and he was very charming. So he offered to drive me home and I, I took up the offer. He then asked me out on a date and we went on one date. But something about him just felt weird and off to me. So I decided that I just didn't want to keep seeing him and I made that clear. What I found was before my sexual assault with this individual, he was stalking me. It seemed like everywhere I was in that county in North Carolina, he was there. If I was at an event, if I was waiting for the bus, if I was meeting, like I always ran into him for some reason. On January 27, 2013, I was home. I was actually waiting for a friend of mine to come pick me up for church. And I had got a phone call that a church member of mine, who I was close with, had passed away. I was distraught. I'm like, wow, this person, we just talked a couple of days ago, definitely wasn't expecting to hear that this person passed away. As soon as I get off that phone call, the guy immediately calls me and he's hearing that, of course, I'm distraught in my voice. So he's like, what's going on? I'm like, you know, I just got some news that someone died. And he's like, oh, let me just come over and console you. Against my better judgment, I was like, okay, fine. Well, little did I know, he was already outside my apartment. And so when he came into my house, what was supposed to be a moment of him coming to console me because someone passed away, turned into him projecting his anger onto me because I had rejected him, because I decided to stop speaking to him. It got real heated real quick, and I remember asking him to leave, and he wouldn't leave. And something in my gut, Janet, told me something was about to happen. I didn't know what that something was, but something was like, some, this is about to really go left real quick. I kept asking him to leave, and then just when I thought he was leaving, he proceeded to grab me, and he proceeded to rape me. I remember as soon as it was done, I went looking for my phone and he just stood there to kind of see what I was going to do. I feel like subconsciously he knew he had just did something wrong. And so I tried to play it cool. And by the time he left, the person that I was waiting for to come pick me up has shown up a few minutes later. And I'm just hysterically crying. I tell her what happened and she's like, you need to call the cops. You need to call the cops. But if I be honest, being a woman of color, the last thing I wanted to do was get the cops involved From that moment, I did what I know not to do now, which was to get in the shower. Like I just wanted to scrub and scrub and scrub until I can get this person's scent and touch and everything about him off of me from that that sexual assault, I really started to get into alcohol as a way to cope. i I felt so many emotions. I was angry, I was frustrated. I blamed myself. I felt guilty. I'm like, how could you do this? Um, how could you allow this to happen? All these emotions, all these feelings. And I didn't have no coping skills. I come from a line of addicts. Nice. So the only thing I knew to do in the moment was drink. And I continued to drink. It was I, I, I tell people I was like a functioning alcoholic. I would go to work, go to church, do all the things that I know to do, and then come home and vodka or rum was my friend. And even as I was going through the proceedings, because I did eventually report it, um, and unfortunately, the justice system didn't do anything. In fact, they blamed me for what happened to me. That added more fuel to the fire. So I continued to drink until one day I had a moment where I got so frustrated and so enraged, I found myself parked outside of his job with a, a knife in my car. And I called my best friend and he had to be the one to talk me off the ledge. And he was like, Leah, you have to do something because you're letting what happened to you get the best of you. And so it was in that moment that I said, "Okay, I need to go to therapy. I need to really process what it is that I'm feeling and all of the feelings that I'm feeling about what happened to me.
2: Yeah, obviously it was it was a dreadful thing that happened. But the fact that he he did that when you were so vulnerable from getting this awful news, you know, it's just unbelievable. So I'm so sorry that happened to you. How long were you drinking for?
0: I would say for me, it was about a good six months to a year. Probably the Mm. first six months was the heaviest because, again, I just didn't know what to do with my feelings.
2: Had you been a, a drinker before that, Leah? had you been a moderate drinker and then it really stepped up after this? No or, I or do you I not stayed away much from at
0: all? alcohol because of what I saw Okay, yeah, I, yeah. I tell people yeah. I'm one of those people that I'm so mindful of the addiction that runs in my bloodline that I yeah. just don't drink. but I guess I would say because I saw it so much in my family. And that seemed to be their go-to when life got rough. I just kind of followed in the same footsteps.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober.
2: So you decided to go to therapy instead. So you found a good therapist that helped you get off the booze?
0: Yeah. So I started going to therapy at the local rape crisis center in the county that I got sexually assaulted in. And I, I was honest about drinking and even honest about having a a bloodline of alcoholism and and drug addiction. And one of the things that she had encouraged me to do was go to Al-Anon. And she had encouraged that because she's like, that's the place for a lot of family members of loved ones who have some sort of addiction to really begin to understand the cycle of addiction, but then also just to understand like the behavior and everything. Because at that same time, In my life, I was still trying to have some type of relationship with my parents. So I had to deal with the root of the addiction in my life. And so I started going to therapy. I did attend Al-Anon. And then maybe shortly after my sexual assault, my mom moved down to North Carolina. So I would go and attend NA meetings with her, really just trying to get an understanding. I don't think for me, I got to the point where I could not stop. I wouldn't say it was easy, but I think because I never was a drinker like that in the begin with, it was just like, okay, I can stop this. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need this.
2: Yeah. Because it was six months, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So
0: yeah. at some point I just started to really work on my healing journey and stop drinking and really just give myself the place and space to process what it was that I was feeling.
2: Yeah. So in a way that's kind of getting sober, pushed you really to the healing journey didn't it it? because it it just started that process going yeah wow so 2013 you said so you've been sober about 10 years yeah 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 well congratulations that's so impressive and I presume that you you've never touched drugs at all I mean obviously alcohol's a drug but the other ones Yeah, yeah no yeah well, you know, good on you because so many people with that kind of background, they they end up slipping towards that. You must be a very strong woman. Thank you. So I've read in your bio, et cetera, that you're very active in the fight to end sexual violence. Mm. So please tell us about your work in this area.
0: Yeah. So fast forward eight years after I was sexually assaulted I got a phone call from the same state, same county, by this time I wasn't living in North Carolina anymore, that my rape kit had just been tested and that they had a DNA match and they wanted to know what it is that I wanted to do about it. And to be honest, Janet, I was like so floored because I'm like, wait, what do you mean it was just tested? I was sexually assaulted in 2013. So, of course, you would think that when you go through that process of having to do a rape kit, like justice is going to do what it's designed to do. That's what you would think. So to get that phone call eight years later, I was like, okay, wait. One, let me do some research and see if this is a thing and that this wasn't just an isolated incident. And unfortunately, I discovered that here in the United States of America, in all 50 states, there is a backlog of untested rape kits. What is happening right now is that a lot of these states are now putting legislation in place to now go back and test these rape kits that have never been tested And they haven't been tested for a variety of reasons. So in the state of North Carolina where I was sexually assaulted, the law at the time that I was raped was that they did not test kits of people that knew each other. Because my perpetrator told the DA, oh, it was consensual. We had one date. They immediately was just like, all right, well, we're not testing the kit. I thought that was absolutely... Mind-blowing! Like, wait, what? Like, do you not understand the statistics around sexual assault? It literally says fifty-seven percent of all victims know their perpetrators. So, why wouldn't you test my kit? And why would you take his word over mine? I got, I got frustrated enough to say, I need to figure out how to do something about it. And so, I had a conversation with a dear colleague of mine who does a lot of gun violence advocacy and activism in Detroit because her son was killed. And she said to me, Leah, there are tons of organizations out there that are doing this work in this fight. You should partner with them because they need a sexual assault survivor voice. And so I did that. I started researching and I partnered with the local, the federal coalition here in the state of Maryland where I live. And we've been working together for over a year to really fight And put more awareness on the the backlog here in the state of Maryland. It's been an honor to be able to sit at the table with legislation and attorney generals and even law enforcement and be that voice for so many of other survivors and victims who don't have the opportunity to really say what's going on and what they're experiencing.
2: I'm sure you inspire so many people to talk about what's happened to them because you'll be a role model for them. Well done. Thank you. So you've written lots of books. Talk to us about your books. Yeah. you know, Did I see eight? Eight
0: books. So, you know, it's funny, Janet, because really I started writing as a way to escape. So I always tell people I started writing as a child. Writing was my way of kind of creating a fantasy world about who my parents really were in order to escape the reality of what I was dealing with. So even as a young kid, I wrote And I tell people I always had elaborate stories about like my parents and I would say things like, you know, my dad was a CIA agent on a top secret mission versus saying he's incarcerated. Writing was my way of creating a fantasy world. So when I wrote my first book, Unapologetically Me, in 2017, it came at a time in my life where I'm a very spiritual person. I go to church. I pray. God was revealing to me that it was time to tell my story. And at first, I'm like, what story? And who am I telling it to? You know, and he laid it on my heart to write a book. And I said, okay, guy, well, if I'm going to write this book, tell me what is it that I'm supposed to write about? And he began to talk to me about my mother-daughter relationship. So Unapologetically Me is really the story of that internal battle I had as a daughter of an addict and the struggle of loving her, right? but despising her because of the life and the choices that she chose to, help to make and how it really impacted my life. I released that book April 1st of 2017, and I, it was amazing, the response, because I had so many other daughters who were like, you literally just wrote in your book how I've been feeling my entire life. So it was a great way to feel like I wasn't alone. Because I did. I thought I was the only one that was having this internal conflict with my mother, who was an addict, to discover that there was a whole community of other people out there that were struggling too, that were like, I love my parents, but I just don't care for what they do. I always tell people, I believe there's never a one and done with God. So from the first book, all the way to the eighth book, each one of my books are different experiences that I've had in my life. And how I've been able to heal from them. So I almost look, it's almost like a blueprint to my healing journey. And so my eighth book, which came out in September of last year called Born to be Unbound, is really a book that I really give deep insight to my healing journey and what it's like to now be on the other side of so many traumatic experiences in my life and really thriving. That's why I always tell people for me, there's a difference between surviving something and thriving through something.
2: Absolutely. And obviously, writing is therapy as well. It must be cathartic for you every time you sit down and write. You know, we're always telling our community, recommending that they journal. Yes. Because, you know, when we get sober, we have so many feelings that are suddenly released that we've been numbing away for years it really helps just to to process those emotions by writing about them even if you don't publish like you've published but it's wonderful to publish because then you you help so many other people the podcast yeah i was looking at your episodes i'm i'm gonna book myself in for a an episode Yeah, you, you talk a lot about purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're quite big on purpose as well. So talk to our listeners about purpose. What do you see as your purpose? And how does it help everybody to have a sense of purpose? Yeah, so it's so
0: funny, the journey to purpose, I used to say that I was on this path to turning my pain into purpose. And then one day in my prayer time, God had revealed to me that I am purpose. I was born with the purpose. I was born on purpose. And so the journey is not to turn pain into purpose, it's more to turn pain into power. It's to to take those things that were designed to stop you in your tracks And do something amazing with it, whether that is to inspire somebody else, whether that is to give it, you know, insight to your life and your journey to help motivate somebody else. And so I feel like my purpose today is really to speak up and speak up about things that not only plague me as a person, but just my community as a whole. And to be that voice to so many people that are struggling in silence, to let them know that how you start is not necessarily how you end. I think many of us have rough starts. You know, we come from childhood trauma, We might've experienced domestic violence, sexual assault, just any type of traumatic experience or dysfunction, but that's not a key indicator of how your life can be. And I always tell people, I feel like I'm the poster child for life after loss, life after trauma, life after just pain. And I always try to be honest about my journey and let people know that it's a process. It's a daily choosing to be open to what the universe or God has in store for you. One thing I've learned in my healing journey is that trauma can easily make you feel like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. When you experience some type of trauma or loss or something devastating, it's almost like your body is in flight mode all the time. Imagine what that does to your Mm -hmm. nervous system. You're in anxiety all the time. And the minute that you step into this place of healing, you realize that the other shoe never drops. That you really have survived 100% of the worst days of your life. And so I had to make a choice in my journey to be like, okay, if I've gone through the worst things that could ever happen to me and made it through, then what does the best look like? And then why not be open to the best? And so every day when I wake up, I literally say out loud, I'm like, God... I'm expecting your best today. I don't know how it's going to come. I don't know where it's going to come through or who it's going to come through, but I'm expecting it because I've already survived through the hundred percent of the worst things that could ever happen to me. And so for me, that's, that's purpose.
2: That's such a fantastic attitude. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the opposite to being a victim. is Yeah. It? <laughs> yeah. And you don't want to be that
1: Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at janet at Tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation.
2: So talk to us about your your daily life these days, Leah. What have you been up to this last week? You know, honestly,
0: these last few days, I've spent a lot of time in meditation, prayer, just listening to hear what's next for my life, what's next for my business. I've been afforded so many different opportunities to speak at different events And just share my story, which I'm always grateful for opportunities to be able to share my journey because I always tell God, who's the one person that needs your touch today? Who needs you today? Who needs to hear something from you today? For me... That's what every day looks like. But when I'm not doing those things, I like to just relax. I I am a fan of like do nothing days, Jen. (laughs) Like I tell people all the time, my self-care sometimes looks like not doing anything. And it feels good because I think society makes us feel like we have to be go, 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 go all the time. And again, that does a lot to your nervous system. So sometimes you have to take a pause. You have to do nothing. You know, if I'm not doing that, I love a good dance break. I'll put some music on and just dance around my house, read a good book. I started back in 2022, I started challenging myself to read 25 books a year. That has been my challenge. So I'm on book one. So we're going to see if I... Well, it's January, <laughs> Right. We're going to see <laughs> if we hit the 25 mark like I did last year. I, re- I do realize that A part of my journey and my purpose is always personal development, learning something new, growing and developing.
2: Yeah, I often say that, you know, for those of us that were dependent on alcohol, sobriety is almost like a springboard to self-development. Because I know when I got sober, I thought, oh, well, I've got to stop drinking for various reasons, which I won't bore you with now. But I knew I had to stop. I just thought, well, you know, I'll probably feel better. Life's going to be a bit dull, but whatever. I wasn't expecting, you know, recovery to be quite so magical. And I didn't realize that I would want to find a purpose and live in a completely different way. Plenty of surprises in life if you're open to opportunities. I agree. And I, I like your attitude about doing nothing sometimes because you're right, you know, we all rush around far too much. And what do they say? We are human beings, not human doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Sometimes that's the key, it's just to be. Like, I remember when I was in grad yeah. school, one of my friends used to always say her mantra was be where your feet are. And at first, I used to think that was weird. I'm like, what do you mean, be where your feet are? But really, that was her fancy way of just saying be present. Wherever you are mm-hmm. in the moment, be there. Stop worrying about what's in, yeah. stop worrying about what's to come yeah just be there (laughs) and and you'll find that that helps lessen the anxiety the worry the frustration because you're not focusing on where am I headed you're just enjoying the journey
2: yeah yeah and of course drugs alcohol they take us away from the moment don't they because they they numb us out a bit uh and lots of people say to me you know when when they stop drinking they say oh, but I'm so bored now. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, just, just sit with the boredom because that's when the magic will happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think our creativity comes back when we've got some quiet time, Yeah, when our schedule isn't just bam, 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 you know, every hour is filled. We, we've we got to take a breath now and again. I agree. What else can you tell us? Anything else you'd like to talk about, Leah?
0: I think really for me, what I enjoy the most about where I am in my life is I'm bringing people on the journey and I'm creating opportunities for other people to be able to do what I do and tell their story. I do dabble in filmmaking. <laughs> I am a producer of, of a documentary that's actually released in April. It's called The Forgotten Unheard Stories of Black Women and Sexual Assault. I created this documentary really alongside one of my partner, uh, Teresa Mitchell, because we wanted to create a film that highlights what it's like to go through not only sexual assault as a person of color, but really shine the light on the recovery process. Because a lot of times when we hear sexual assault, you know, we don't really think about the journey that a, a survivor has to go through to really regain who they are regain in touch with themselves, their body, even relationships. And so I tell my story in full detail in the documentary. And I have three other amazing women that came on the journey with us to share their story. And we really focused on what it's like to recover. You know, a lot of the women that are in there are now married. So we talked about what was that like? Like, how was it being able to reconnect with a man again? After being violated by a man, because I know for me, that was hard. That was extremely hard to want to date. I remember at a point in my journey of recovering from sexual assault, like I didn't even want to look attractive. You know, my my therapist, she literally would be like, Leah, can you go get your nails done? Can you go do something to make you feel like you again? But it was hard because I had equated attractiveness to my sexual assault. And so if I could do anything to not look appealing to the opposite sex, I was going to do it. So we touch on that. We touch on hypersexuality, which is another area that I feel like when it comes to survivors of sexual assault, we don't get much conversation about. But a lot of us do struggle with sex and not just whether or not to have sex, but we even go to the extreme of having it very often. You know, I struggle with hypersexuality. I found myself constantly having sex with random people. And I remember bringing that to my therapist and she was like, that's because sexual assault is about power and control. And what you're trying to do with your body is regain control because someone violated you. I would have never put those two together. But when she said that, I was like, that makes absolute sense. And so yeah. We wanted to create a, a documentary where we were going to talk to everyday women about that journey and what that's like. So I'm super excited that it will be releasing in April and uh, during Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so the plan is to definitely do some screenings and really spark the conversation because sexual violence yeah. needs to be up out of the earth, but it takes us having conversation and getting in the fight together to stop
2: it. Yeah. Yeah, well that that sounds a wonderful project, okay. and of course the the Me Too movement has uh, has helped, hasn't it? At least people talk about it. If these celebrities are prepared to talk about it, you know, then more and more people will.
0: Yeah, I agree, and and that's what I think I love the most about when social media is actually doing what it's designed to do is that it can spark these conversations. It can spark a, a movement of sorts. It can get people to talk about these things you know i feel like that's what we're seeing with mental health i feel like that's what we're even seeing around addiction and suicide like we're having these conversations and we're getting people to really shine the light on internal struggles that everyday people are having and that's even one of the reasons why i love podcasting because you can create the format and the place to talk about things that matter to you, but then also help spark conversations that can bring, be brought to a community of people who are going through it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I often think, you know, with, with my podcast, even if it only helps one person, you know, then it's, it's worthwhile. So what's your podcast called again? So my podcast is called Hey Queen Thrive. That's right. How could I forget a name like that?
0: <laughs> it's definitely taken a, a life of its own. It's so funny because when I got into podcasting two years ago, I don't think I've, I have saw it growing to the magnitude that it, was, it grew to. Um, but really, I just wanted to create a space for everyday women to share their journeys and their stories. Because I think I always say one of the misconceptions of social media is that we see highlights, right? So we see the good things that happen and we see people being successful. But what we don't see is the journey and we don't see is the process. Yeah. And so with Hey Queen Thrive, I created a space for women, mainly women. I do have a few men that come Every now and then, but mainly women to really share their journey of how yep. they got to this place of success. What was the backstory? Yep. And so it's been amazing.
2: Thank you so much, Leah. What an incredible woman you are. Let's pull out a few key points from that conversation. Raised by her maternal grandparents, Leia felt different from her friends at school. And as she gradually began to learn more about her mom, she felt abandoned and resentful, especially as her grandma didn't even want to talk about her mom. Leia struggled to understand her parents' behavior until she began her own healing journey. That made her realize that in fact her parents had done their best with the tools available to them at the time. Considering her tough start in life, Leia was doing okay until she got sexually assaulted by a guy that she dated once and then rejected. Angry about his rejection, he began to stalk her and one day he got into her apartment and raped her. Leia had no faith in the police, so she didn't even report it at the time. She felt angry, frustrated, guilty, but had no coping skills, so she turned to alcohol. She'd managed to stay away from drugs and alcohol because of her parents but this event just pushed her over the edge and as a child of addicts it was the only coping technique she knew. She spent a whole year drinking heavily to numb out her feelings. Eventually she did report her rape to the police but in fact they blamed her as it was someone she knew and that just made everything worse. As she sank further into alcohol dependence, a friend convinced her to go to therapy to try and process her feelings. So she did. And she also went to Al-Anon to try and understand her parents better. As a result, Leia managed to stop drinking. And now she's been sober for a whole decade. Eight years after her rape, she was astonished to receive the results of her rape kit. The rape kit contained the evidence collected by the police when she reported the crime. Apparently, the police hadn't even passed on the kit for testing just because she knew her assailant, in spite of the fact that 57% of rape victims know their perpetrator. This led Leah to do some research on the incredible backlog of rape kits in the U.S., Hundreds of thousands of them just sitting on shelves untested while the assailants walk free. This experience made Leah decide to become an activist in the fight against sexual violence. These days she has a voice and she's raising awareness by campaigning and public speaking. And she's written an incredible eight books. Her latest book is called Unapologetically Me and it's about the internal conflict of being the daughter of addicts. Writing is part of her healing journey, and we agreed that journaling can be so powerful. We talked about the difference between surviving and thriving. At Tribe Sober, we say we want people to thrive in their sobriety and not just survive. And the difference between those two states is, of course, that surviving means just staying afloat, getting by without drinking, just existing and meeting our basic needs, whereas thriving in sobriety means flourishing. It means experiencing positive growth and progress in every aspect of our life. Leia has managed to turn her pain into power, which is what many of us here at the tribe have done, and that's why we say that sobriety is our superpower. Leia said something very interesting about trauma. She said, if you don't do the work to heal, you can often feel as if you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, as she put it. Step into a place of healing and the shoe won't drop. Leah got through the worst and she's now ready for the very best. You can follow this incredible woman on social media and her website is Leahm.forney.com. I'm going to put all the links in the show notes. I'm recording this in early April and April is workshop month. We have our four-hour Zoom workshop coming up on the 22nd of April and we've scheduled it at a later time to suit our US listeners. And if you prefer to work alone rather than in a group, then check out our online workshop which is called Kickstart Your Sober Life. You can find more about both of these programs on tribesober.com under our services or just drop me a line, Janet at Tribesober.com, and I'll help you figure out which is the best one for you. Let me end with a message from one of our chat rooms. This is Cherie from the US. Good morning. Happy Saturday. Feeling happy to be sober this last week. Meeting friends tomorrow at noon at a tavern for brunch and whatever. But my whatever will not be alcohol or wine. It will be club soda with lime or maybe alcohol-free beer. I haven't seen a few of these girls for three years, so I'm now looking forward to it and catching up with their lives and not just focusing on getting a buzz, focusing on other people's lives and just enjoying each other's company. That's how I'm playing it out in my mind. That's beautiful, Sherry. Well done. I think many of us worried about how we would socialize without alcohol. But as Sherry says, the secret is to actually listen to people rather than be focusing on getting our buzz on. Who knew? Finally, if you'd like a copy of our free PDF, Tribe Sober Battle Plan, just drop me a line. Janet at tribesober.com. That's it from me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain.
1: It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.